Isaiah 58. Shout it aloud. Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways. As if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and in strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to, be hu to humble himself? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To lose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke? To set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood, then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your flame frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honorable, and if you honor it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, then you will find your joy in the Lord, and I'll cause you to ride on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. Our second reading is from Luke 14, verse 12 to 21. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Jesus replied, 
A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he, said, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said, I've just bought five yoke of oxen and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I've just got married so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind and the lame. This is God's word. Well, good evening, everybody. My welcome. Uh, my name is Matt Fuller. I'm uh, one of the staff ministers here. Uh, lovely to uh, see you as ever. And if you're visiting, you are indeed very welcome. And uh, this month we're doing something slightly different. Uh, we're breaking our normal habit, uh, which is largely to work our way through different parts of Scripture, different books of the Bible or, or sections of them. And uh, that's what we, how we normally uh, like to do things here. But we'll get back to that in February. We'll start the book of Colossians and spend 10 weeks or so in Colossians, uh, going, our way, going our way through that. And there's something very healthy about that. It lets God set the agenda. It's very clear what's going on. But um, normally in January, just because we're a little bit wild in a pathetic way, uh, we like to change things up and uh, do look at a topic uh, for the month of January in the evening. And uh, just so, just so what we're doing. So this... Over the next few weeks, we're going to think a little bit specifically about the topic of social justice and uh, how we should think about that as Christians. It seemed a good topic to do. It seemed for a number of reasons. One, it's topical, which is good for a topic. Um, you've had uh, the Occupy London campaign, of course, uh, to, uh, angrily demonstrating, arguing for we need more economic justice, social justice, whatever you make of that. Uh, just this week, you had the, uh, the Chancellor, the Exchequer, insisting that uh, child benefit payments would indeed be means-tested from April. Not that many here are too excited or distressed about that. But um, and the, the, his comment on that was, it's an issue of social justice. It has to be done. You have to means-test uh, certain benefits. That was his phrase. And then just generally, at a time of uh, austerity measures, I don't know if you feel it personally, many would, at a time when certainly nationally some will feel the pinch a lot more than they have done over recent years. Seemed a sensible thing to consider uh, as Christians. How do we think about such issues? Do What is our responsibility to those around us who have less, who are poor, to put it in very simple terms? What should we do? And uh, so it seemed a good thing to do. So I spent most of December reading and thinking about this, and I've realized it's very complicated indeed. Uh, when you come to work it out in practice. But certain principles are very clear, and hopefully we'll work through them over the next three weeks. Just a couple of uh, caveats to put in place before we begin, um, which I always do when doing this sort of topical series. Uh, the, the first is this. If, because we're not working our way through the book of a, a, the book of a Bible, a book of the Bible, um, uh, it's much easier for me, if I desire, to just to ride the hobby horses and say exactly what I want. And because we'll really base ourselves in one passage and work our way through it progressively, that means it's a little bit easier for me to say what I want without you looking down and saying that's clearly what God is saying. That's just, a re that's just realistic when you look at things topically. 
And uh, so I'd encourage you, go away, think hard. I, I don't intend to ride my hobby horses, um, but um, you should check that I'm not doing that. And that's why generally we like to work our way through books of the Bible. It's a, it's a safer way of teaching. Everyone can look down and go, yes, that is what the Bible says, uh, and check what's going on. So there's the first caveat. You just need to be on your, on your toes perhaps a little bit more when we're thinking topically. But the second is this. This is even more annoying. Uh, the second is this, which is um, this is really going to be one sermon in three sections. So if you only come tonight and miss the next two, I will probably be unbalanced. Of course, if you come to all three, I will be perfectly balanced and, I'm, <laughs> and a biblical model of uh, holding all these things in tension rightly. Well, you know, I'll give it a go. But um, if you come to one, there's just that danger. Uh, and particularly tonight, it may well be that I raise quite a number of questions and then decline to answer them until next week or the following week. And that just could be very irritating or teasing and tantalizing, you know, decide upon your own description for that. Okay? But I'll do those things in place. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll crack on him. Our Father, we want to praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes became poor, so that we through his poverty might become rich. That is a wonderful truth right at the heart of the gospel. And as we begin this evening to contemplate these issues, and Father, your heart for the marginalized, would we understand the scriptures rightly? Would we hold these things rightly in balance? Would we understand how to take these uh, prophetic words from the Old Testament? And would you speak them clearly, rightly, appropriately to our hearts today? Father, where we're hard, would you soften us? Where we're very tender, would you prevent us just from feeling needlessly guilty? But Father, please would your spirit speak to us this evening so we would become people who have your heart for justice in this world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's how it works in. Uh, tonight we're looking at the Lord's heart for justice. Uh, uh, the second week we're consider, um, going to consider evangelism and justice in particular as one discrete issue, how those two relate. And then third week we'll come to priorities in justice. Well, I hope, just to lump in everything I've not been, no. Well, I hope to um, uh, really think, okay, okay. There are a lot of injunctions upon us. How do we balance everything? So if you don't make it to the last one, that's hopefully when all the threads come together, but we'll see. We're going to start in uh, Isaiah 58. If you've let that uh, drop, uh, do turn back to page whatever it was. Um, uh, Isaiah 7, excellent, 744. Uh, I have a Bible, but it's a different one, um, I think, to many of you. Um, Isaiah 58, very good place to start on these issues. Now, I'm in no sense going to give you an exposition of of the whole of Isaiah 58, or indeed explain fully where it fits into the book. I am sorry, that's not what we're doing tonight. But let me just give you two little comments uh, to help uh, as we begin on Isaiah 58. Uh, Some of there's a sheet, and I think I've put them down on here. The first, just as we begin, just to be clear that justice is not the kingdom or the gospel. I'll think more about this next week. But when we come to look at these issues, some in the Christian arena would say something along the lines of, whenever justice spreads, God's kingdom spreads. And I have to say, that 
Unfortunately, that is, that's a bit of a nonsense biblically. The kingdom of God only grows when people acknowledge Jesus Christ as king. That's when his kingdom grows, the realm of Jesus Christ. So while it's a very good thing when justice is spread, that is not the spread of Jesus' kingdom. Good though it is, pleased though he would be with it, biblically the kingdom only grows when people recognize him as king and put their faith in him as their king and savior. That's how the kingdom grows. So we don't want to confuse that as an issue before we begin. We don't want to confuse what is uh, the gospel of what Jesus Christ has done for us, with a response, which he would call to us to do, which is to live out a life of justice. The two are different. The message of the kingdom is one of good news, what Jesus Christ has done, and will do in the future when he returns. Uh, Living a life of justice is our response. You don't want to get those two confused. It's an obvious point, but one is news and one is a response. When you go home, or some night this week, you turn on and you happen to watch the 10 o'clock news, and there is Hugh Edwards, um, he looks tired these days. Do you not, do you not turn on and think, you, you look tired. Anyway, that's just me. But he looks a bit tired. But you turn on the news and you get beyond the banalities of Hugh's bags under his eyes. And uh, you're listening to the news and he tells you whatever the news is. And he tells you that um, whatever the Prime Minister has been out on another visit to Afghanistan. You don't think to yourself, oh right, the Prime Minister has been to Afghanistan. I need to go to Afghanistan tomorrow. That's what I need to do. That's what the news is telling me. I need to go to Afghanistan. It doesn't tell you that. That's, it's an account. It's a report of what's taken place. You don't you know, listen to the news and think, okay, there's going, to be a, there's going to be a strike in Manchester this week. Well, I must go to Manchester and go and strike. That's, that's, you know, it's a report. The gospel is a report of what Jesus Christ has done. The message of the kingdom, biblically, is a report of what Jesus Christ has done. His, de- his, his life, his teaching, his death, his resurrection. It's what he has done. That is a response we're to make. That's to live a life of justice, amongst other things. But don't get it too confused. News, what Jesus has done, that's what gets you, that's what makes you become a Christian. And there's a response, there's different ways of responding, of which living justly would be one of them. Okay? Don't confuse those two. Justice is not the kingdom. The second is, as we come to Isaiah 58, Israel is not the UK. So in the Old Testament, God has a direct relationship with the nation of Israel. They are his people. In a way, he does not have a direct relationship with any nation. Not the great British Empire, not God bless America, not any specific nation. It was a unique historical event that God chose one nation, Israel, to have a direct relationship with. He appointed their kings, he gave them their laws. There is no comparable situation globally as a nation today. So we just need to bear that in mind when we look at these calls for justice in the Old Testament. For example, the United Kingdom is not under the Mosaic Law. It would be different were we under the Mosaic Law. Under the Mosaic Law, the sixth year of harvest was a miraculous one. Five years, good harvests normally. The sixth year of harvest in Israel would be miraculous. So the seventh year, you didn't have to work. Now, I've not heard of that policy in the UK. That you work for five years, the sixth year is just bonanza, and the following year, no one works but just has a year. You don't, I don't see that policy uh, enacted in any sense in the United Kingdom, fun as it might be to have such a thing. Similarly, under the Mosaic law, every 50 years, the, the land had to be returned to its original owners under the law of Jubilee. Now, I don't see that happening in London. The Grosvenor Estate, which owns most of Mayfair, might be a bit disappointed if that were the case. 
and land had to go back to its original owners. It's different now. Okay, with those things in place, there are still some broad principles, some clear principles which come out about how we're to live. Let's have a look at Isaiah 58. I have to tell you, I found this deeply unsettling, personally, as a chapter, looking at this. And these issues, some of these issues of justice, personally, very unsettling. But to what we see then tonight, then, the Lord's heart, seen in three things in particular, fighting oppression, sharing resources, and understanding grace. The Lord's heart is seen in fighting oppression, sharing resources, understanding grace. Let's work through them. Isaiah 58 then, uh, it's, uh, it's an uncertain passage. The people then, they seem very religious, but uh, God's going to tell them otherwise. So, uh, 58 verse 1, Shout it aloud, do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people in their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. Okay, bad news. You're messing up my people. Okay, well, what's going on? They're very religious, verse 2. Day after day, they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of God. They seek me out daily. Well, that's good. They're eager to know my ways. Well, that's good. They want justice. They want just decisions, verse 2, but just for themselves. It's really the concern about personal, individual justice. And yet something is wrong. They have a transactional faith, it seems, verse 3. Why have we fasted? You've not seen it, God. Why have we humbled ourselves and you've not noticed? It's a transactional idea of faith. Uh, God, I've fasted, now you owe me. I've gone without food for a whole day, and now you owe me. And, you know, you need to be wary of that in the Christian faith. I don't, you know, not from church here, but a, a lovely chap I was talking to this week, recently, um, uh, uh, well, I was made unemployed this week. I said, I don't get it, I don't get, I don't get it. I prayed every day that God would make me unemployed. Was he not listening? complicated of course but it seemed he was saying I've put my money in the slot why hasn't God paid me back I've done my bit I've scratched his back why doesn't he scratch mine that's not faith really that's thinking you can buy God or manipulate God faith is trust in him whatever happens anyway they seem to have that sort of transactional faith why have we fasted that was a waste of time you've not bothered listening to us but their faith is flawed and the flaws are pretty clear verse 4 Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife and in striking each other with wicked fists. That's clearly not good, is it? We've been very good today and fasted. But we're a bit grumpy now. I'm going to have a fight instead. I mean, it's not, you know, that's obviously bad. You cannot fast as you do today and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I've chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself. Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed, for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is, is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? God's saying, you're once a week religion, I'm not interested in it. You turn up once a week, go through the motions, and when you go away, it, it, it makes no impact upon your heart. The way you relate to other people is immoral and corrupt. I am not interested in your once a week attendance. But what is true fasting? What's the religion that concerns me or interests me? Well, that begins verses 6 and 7. And actually, in truth, that's where we spend most of our time. True fasting is seen in these couple of things. First then, verse 6, fighting oppression. Here's true fasting, or here's what the Lord's heart desires. 
uh, fighting oppression. Verse 6. Three parallel phrases. Is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? One, to loose the chains of injustice. Two, to untie the cords of the yoke. Three, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Three parallel phrases. Tell my people to get involved with the vulnerable and the marginalized in society. Loose the chains of injustice, untie the cords of the yoke, set the oppressed free, break every yoke. Now what does that mean, breaking yokes? You know the yoke is the, the, um, uh, the wooden thing that goes across someone's back which they carry weights with. What does this mean, breaking the chains of injustice? Well, biblically it seems to me there are two main elements to it. The first everyone agrees on, the second not everyone does. Let me just tell you that. So the first then is this, it must at least involve anti-corruption. It must involve anti-corruption. So making sure that the vulnerable in society have equal rights before the law as the wealthy. Making sure that if two people come before a judge, the judge doesn't instinctively back the one who's got more money in the case. But that's, <clears throat> give thanks. In the West, that is deeply enshrined into our thinking, into our judiciaries generally. Often on a courthouse, you'll see Lady Justice, and she has a blindfold. She's got a sword, she's got her scales, she's got a blindfold over her eyes. The idea being, I don't know who's in front of me, I will just hear the case and give my verdict. The old Bailey, you have Lady Justice there, she's not blindfolded. Apparently English Justice doesn't need that, it's too good. The... Um, what it does have over the door though, of the old Bailey is defend the children of the poor, punish the wrongdoer. So he wants it's a similar principle. D- defend, make sure you're not biased towards the wealthy, the rich, those who have. Now earlier, in chapter 1 of Isaiah, God has blasted corruption. Blasted corrupt judges. Blasted those who are powerful and are paying backhanders to people. We've had that full on in chapter 1 of Isaiah. Yes, you still see that sort of thing going on today. Look, I don't know any of the details really of the case. But the, the recent trial, that uh, not trial, the recent case has been uh, in the High Court, Roman Abramovich, Boris Berezovsky. I don't know where the wrongs and rights are of that case, but what's very clear if you followed any of it, there are at least there are example, two examples of men who have become exceptionally rich by cheaply getting nationalized assets to the detriment of the Russian people. There's something very obviously not right that's taken place there. And that's what Isaiah at least is lambasting. That, I would suggest, anti-corruption. Now, I take it that most of us are very comfortable with that. Who believes in corruption? Well, just the one mafioso at the back. But uh, no, one really, no, no one's really going to say, yeah, corruption, good, I like it. We're all against that, okay? So it must mean... Um, Breaking the chains of injustice means that, certainly, anti-corruption. But the second thing I think it means, now not all Christians would agree with this, but let me just try and persuade you of what I think is going on here. It also means that God is pro the marginalized. God is particularly concerned for the oppressed or the marginalized in society. Now, three times God defines himself like this. Um, I don't know if we got them. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and uh, verse 18. He, God, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. 
He is a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows. That's God in his holy dwelling. Psalm 146 verse 9. The Lord watches over the alien and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. That triumvirate come up repeatedly in scripture. The fatherless, the widow, the alien. Because they are the, they were, sorry, the marginalized in an agrarian, pre-modern society. Those who are, those are the ones who've got nothing. They've got no stake in society. And you could easily oppress them, easily take advantage of them. And God chooses to define himself as the one who defends them. God defines himself in lots of ways. But certainly one of them is that. It's quite a grand title, isn't it? I've not met you before. I come up to you after the, after the service. Hello, who are you? I am the defender of the widow. I mean, that'd be slightly odd. Um, but three times at least in Scripture, God says, I am the defender of the widow, the alien, the orphan. That's who I am, because those things concern me deeply. Now, I think I, previously, I've been working my way through the New Testament as well, I think I've been happy to say that God was biased towards the poor. It seemed to me that was what Scripture suggested. God was biased towards the poor. I think I'd want to tweak that slightly now and say better is God is a God of justice and therefore he sides with the marginalized because life is biased towards the wealthy and the powerful. It just is. And God is concerned to correct that bias. So most of us here in this room, this is just objectively true, there's no sense of guilt in this, but most of us here in this room have had stable family backgrounds of varying degrees, high level of education to university, and therefore opportunities that are denied to many. We are privileged, it's just how it is. And God is particularly concerned, as a God of justice, to make sure that those who lack the privilege are not ill-treated. He's proactively concerned towards the marginalized. So, for example, what do you do with, um, what do you do with a child who grows up uh, in social services and then goes on to be a drunk, live as a prostitute, what do you do with that? Here's some stuff I've discovered recently. 25% of all females who are in care up until the age of 16, foster care or state care, will be pregnant by the time they're 16. 25% will be pregnant by the age of 16. Now, of course, what do you do with them? Do you just say, you foolish girls, you foolish girls? Or in fact, is it a step backwards? And the reason they're in care is because they were neglected by their parents. for some reason or other. And often with these, when you look at these histories, it's because a generation earlier, they had no parents, neglected, abused. And so it's a discovery for me, this whole pattern. You'll get plenty of children born to 16-year-olds who never had any parents because their birth mother never had any parents. Now, do you say to the youngest at the bottom of the chain, you've never worked, you've never been to university, you are, you are worth less than me. Or do you say, gosh, I'm privileged. This person is not. They need someone to speak up for them. 
don't mishear me. I'm not saying everyone in this room needs to be proactively concerned on that agenda. I'm just saying God has a heart for the marginalized in society. And it's inherently biblical to think that way. Let me give you, so there's God, he's concerned with the, the alien, the fatherless, the widow, that trio. How many other times do they come up in scripture? Let me give you a few examples. So Deuteronomy 14, oops, we lost it. Deuteronomy 14, Deuteronomy 16, the aliens, the fatherless, and the widows, care for them. Next. Fatherless, aliens, widows, next. 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 That's the old, just the Old Testament, commenting on God's commands to his people. You need to be concerned for the fatherless, the widow, the alien. Or just to slightly modernize it, yes, yeah, the, the widow or, or the single mother, the orphan, the genuine asylum seeker. You need to be concerned for them. That's just the sense that the Lord has, that compassion. And we shouldn't be surprised, this is on the front of the sheet. And also, there's no difference in the New Testament observation. James 1.27, religion that our God, uh, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. What is the religion that God cares about, that he accepts? It's to look after orphans and widows in their distress and keep oneself polluted from the world. It's no different in the New Testament age. Don't say that was then and we're different now. James doesn't think so. New Testament doesn't think so. Okay, it's overwhelming. Oh, well, gosh, there's a lot of orphans, widows, aliens. I know, I know. Let me give you one practical example. Again, this is, may not be your issue, but it's one practical example of something that Christians should be concerned about. Who, if uh, this is what we're meant to do, and let me just pick out one in particular from that list that was went by, Isaiah 1, verse 17. Seek justice, encourage the oppressed, defend the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. What might that look like for you and me? to plead the case of the widow, to vocalize and say, stop, this orphan is powerless. I can't think of anyone who is more defenseless or any group that is more defenseless than the 173,000 children who were aborted last year in the United Kingdom. 173,000. At an extraordinary cost of around 118 million, which I don't understand. But 173,000 children last year Report in the UK. Who speaks up for them? Complicated issues? Yes, yes. But many of those abortions are not that complicated. They're lifestyle choices. I know it's complicated and there'll be some here who've had abortions. I'm not, I'm not really wanting to go for that issue in a big way. There's always forgiveness if that's you. But just generally as a principle and as a group, who speaks up for them? I'd love it if we were a church that cared deeply about that. That whenever it's on the, whenever it comes up in the media, yes, we write to our MPs, the, the, the Lords, whoever it may be. Look, some are involved in um, counselling at the gate, the uh, pregnancy crisis centre based in Westminster that offers uh, uh, pre-abortion counselling and post-abortion counselling. Some are involved in that. Do you think you could do that? I mean, not everyone here could by any stretch, but some might be able to and get involved in that. That might be your thing. There's training sessions at the end of January to join that team. 
that's you, get involved. But certainly God is concerned with fighting oppression, particularly for those who are marginalized, the orphan, the widow, the alien. Fighting oppression. Let's push on. So there's one thing that uh, reveals the heart of God. He's concerned with fighting oppression. The second is verse 7. Sharing resources. Verse 7. What is the kind of fasting that God is concerned about? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Ooh. What is acceptable religion? Is it not to share your food with the hungry, provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked, clothe him? Gosh. Now again, how do we do that for everyone? We'll get to that in later weeks. There are different priorities. We don't have the same responsibility to everyone who may cross our path, I don't think. But the attitude here is clearly one of sharing our resources. We are, relatively speaking, wealthy. And Proverbs 14, 31 puts, He who oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. He who is generous to the needy honors God. A fair summary. What about Job 31? Let me just read you a section of Job 31. Here's Job defending himself, saying that he is a just man before God. He puts it this way. If I deny justice to my men servants and maid servants when they had a grievance against me, what will I do when God confronts me? What will I answer when called to account? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one form us both within our mothers? If I have denied the desires of the poor or let the eyes of the widow grow weary, if I have kept my bread to myself, not sharing it with the fatherless, oh, I didn't, but from my youth I reared him as I would a father, and from my birth I guided the widow. But if I had done, if I'd seen anyone perishing for lack of clothing, or a needy man without garment, and his heart didn't bless me for warming him with the fleece from my sheep, if I raised my hand against the fatherless, knowing that I had influence in court, then let my arm fall from the shoulder, let it be broken off at the joint. For I dreaded destruction from God, and for fear of his splendor I could do no such thing. You see, Job just thinks to himself, Obviously, I've, I've shared my resources, and if I didn't, woe to me. But obviously, I have, because that's what a believer does with those who have a lot less. Wow. Now, here's why I start raising questions that I'm just not going to answer today. Sorry about that. Because we, there are different priorities the New Testament in particular would give us about what we should do. I don't want to detract from the force of it, from the heart of God. Of course, it's easy to come up with objections, but, but I'm not going to share my resources with those who recklessly fritter money away. That's ridiculous. Well, maybe, maybe they need your time, which is much more valuable than your money, to help them. Gosh, I've got nothing to spare. I mean, I, I haven't got any spare money to give to those who, are, who you know, knock on my door. Well... No, maybe not. Maybe you have to go without something in order to help those who have nothing else. Maybe. Gosh. I find this just profoundly unsettling. Do you not? 
you know, there'd be times when we've done things sensibly. And I think in our household, we, uh, when we got to James chapter 5, similar sort of issues a couple of, uh, 18 months or so ago, we said, right, we, we, we need to change something. We're going to have, we're going to make our own, it's pathetic, we're going to make our own sandwiches every day rather than buy lunches out. We're going to make our own sandwiches and give that money to street kids in San Salvador. Brilliant, brilliant. That's a, I mean, but it's pathetic, it's just tiny. It was a token thing, but we need to, we just, we've got to start. We've got to make a movement. So when you bite into your stale bread with its disgusting egg mayonnaise or whatever it may be, you think, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, Lord. You know, I, I, you know it's okay, because the resources are going to those who need them more than me. So it's small things. But, you know, I, at the, I, this week I move house. And, you know, you have to buy things when you move house. You buy curtains, otherwise it's, you know, people see it. Um, <laughs> you buy things, and you all just think, gosh, there's just loads of money going on stuff. Stuff. Gosh, I could go without a number of things here in order to give away resources. We're not obliged to. Don't panic. I say we'll get to practical wisdom on how this might work out. The New Testament doesn't command that we share resources. It expects that we'll do so as we understand the gospel. It doesn't command it. But do you feel this sort of burden of the New Testament here? Of the Bible here? I start to feel overwhelmed. Fighting oppression, sharing resources. There's too many people. Thirdly, here's what we need. The Lord's heart is seen in understanding grace. Yes, in fighting oppression. Yes, in sharing resources. But gosh, we need to understand grace. Can you turn on to Luke chapter 14 as we finish? Just a few minutes in Luke chapter 14. Again, this is in no sense an explanation of everything that's going on in the text. Not a, not a chance of that. But let me just make really a couple of points from Luke 14. If we're going to move anywhere near to sharing our resources, fighting injustice, we'll need some help. Luke chapter 14. Let's pick it up, verse 12. Jesus is at a lovely dinner party with nice people. And Jesus says to his host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. What? But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you'll be blessed. What? Jesus says, when you have a dinner, invite people who won't invite you back. Well, what's in it for me? No, now you're, you're getting it. Nothing. Nothing. You're doing it for them. Oh. Oh. Oops. It's a bit unsettling, isn't it? What's in it for me? Well, nothing in the short term, but Jesus will give us two great encouragements to live this way. The first is just at the end of verse 14. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. God sees. God knows how we use our resources, time and money in particular here and now. And he knows if we give ourselves to those who are marginalized, there's nothing back. We get nothing back in this life. We just, it just costs. But he sees and he rewards what better reward than that? Forgive me for digging out an old joke, but you know this old story, you know the man, yeah, the man who goes, the rich man who's determined to take his wealth with him into heaven, so he, uh, he dies, but he drags with him these two huge heavy trunks, they're full of gold bars, and he drags them, you all heard this one, no, he drags these gold bars to the gates of heaven, huge sweat as he 
<clears throat> and they clunk on the ground. And Peter says to him, this is not true, by the way. So Peter, you know, um, Peter says to him, uh, brother, what, what, are you, what are you doing there? I must bring these in with me. What, what's in there? He shows him these gold bars. I must bring these in with me. I can't leave my wealth behind. I need to know that everything I've earned on earth comes with me into heaven. Okay. If you want, you can take them in. He sort of clunks through the gates, dragging these things. And an angel happens to glide, whatever, up to Peter and says, uh, oh, what's the bloke got in his trunks? And Peter says, why? Well, I don't know why, but he's determined to drag in a load of paving slabs into heaven. <laughs> yeah, a lot of you have had that before. The... Um, What's it? It's true. Isn't it? Revelation 21, 21, the streets are paved with gold. But of course, once it makes the point, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're not going to take that with you. And Jesus says, for goodness sake, they can't repay you, but you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. You're not going to take your money with you, you fool. So there's one great encouragement. And there's a second. The second, I think, is even more profound. It's knowing that we are poor spiritually. Just after this account comes the, uh, the parable of the great banquet. Because Jesus has just told, this, uh, just told his host, invite, verse 13 of chapter 14, invites the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind. Then he tells a story. He tells a story of a great banquet. You know the story, familiar with this one, uh, the man who's meant to represent uh, Jesus or God, um, sent out loads of invitations, come and join my banquet with me in heaven. Loads of people say, too busy, can't be bothered, not interested. So Jesus says a second time, verse 21, go out quickly into the streets and, and alleyways of the town and bring in who? The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame. Precisely the same four that he's just said you need to invite to your dinner. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, to become a Christian, or to be a Christian, is to know that you are poor, crippled, blind, lame. Spiritually speaking, that's what you are. You don't come to Jesus and say, help, unless you recognize that. But if you recognize that spiritually, live that out here and now. If you are, if you are unwilling to ever help out the, the blind, the lame, the poor, the cripple, that's, that's pointing towards the fact that there's pride deeply rooted in you. The more we understand the gospel, Spiritually, you are a cripple, you are blamed, you're blind, you're lame. Then in this life, we'll be willing to help the cripple, the blind, the lame. If you're never willing to share your resources, time, money, what are you saying? You're saying, I have done this. I have achieved this. This bank account is mine. This career, it's mine. I've achieved it. The gospel says, no, you haven't. What you have is given by, to you by God. You have to receive it. Jesus Christ, supremely wealthy, gave everything up for those who are worthless. You and me. And the more we understand that, then the more willing we'll be prepared to give ourselves our resources, our time, for those who are worthless. Because we know that spiritually that's who we are.
personally for myself, this may just be odd, and you can just dismiss me as odd again. But, um, you know, whenever I do pass someone begging in the street, I don't know if they're genuine or not half the time, but you know, I find it very profoundly helpful to think to myself, that is me, spiritually. All I can do is sit before God with my cup and say, help. I have no resources. I need your resources. And otherwise, I'm homeless in exile on the street, shut out. I need that. I need to know that God himself has treated me with kindness, even though I'm undeserving. And it just starts. It just starts to retool your heart. So we'll be generous people of justice as well. It's a whole stack of questions there. But God's heart, the Lord's heart, is seen in fighting oppression, sharing resources. You only go that way if you understand grace. Let me lead us in prayer together. Our Father, these are big issues and we can feel it's overwhelmed by, by the need around us and I'm just bewildered by that. We don't want to do that. But we do want to be those who recognize your heart for the people of this world, particularly the marginalized. And we're those who are not hard-hearted, not inured to that, not overwhelmed, but making small steps to share our resources with those who lack, to fight injustice, where we're able to do so. And Father, we're not going to do that unless we understand how you've treated us. So drive that deeper into us, we pray. Our own worthlessness, your own generosity. And in understanding that, would we become more people who seek to live justly in this world? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.